Our, uh, our final text in our sermon series that we've been working through the last few weeks this morning uh, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you happen to grab one of those uh, guest Bibles in the back, we'll be on page 924. Now, you'll probably remember this, this chapter when you hear 1 Corinthians 12 or you think of Romans 12. You know, your mind automatically goes to the discussions from uh, the Apostle Paul about spiritual gifts and life in the body. Um, and you're right to think that way. But I want to focus more this morning on what, in, at least in this chapter here, what prefaces that discussion. What does Paul say first before he starts talking about spiritual gifts or life as a body, members of the body of Christ? We're going to start by the, the main, you saw in your bulletin that the main verses for our, our time this morning will be verses 4 through 7, but I want to go back to verse 1. And I want to start at verse 1 and look at the first few verses there and try to grasp the context of what Paul's going to be talking about. It says back in verse 1, Dear brothers and sisters, Regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand this. What's he talking about? Well, in order to, to grasp what Paul's referring to here and what he's going to launch into here in a moment and why, it's helpful to note the context that the people of Corinth had come out of. What was the, the religious situation in which they found themselves when the gospel came to them? They were, they were pagans. They were, they were people steeped in the, the civic religion of their day, but also the, the ethnic religions of their region, and, and, and more specifically, the, what are called the Greek mystery cults that they would all have found themselves in. The Greek mystery cults, of course, were those cults of the Greco-Roman world that offered benefits beyond what the political religion would have offered them. You know, it's not enough to just, you know, worship and hail the emperor as divine. There's something more personal and, and something more fulfilling to the individual to be found in the, the mystery cult. These were defined by their secret rituals and ceremonies, but also by a certain expectation to have special spiritual experiences. I engage in the cult. I receive a thing. I experience, I have this personal experience whether it's some sort of trance or some sort of ecstasy or some sort of special ability. And to the people in, in Paul's day, these experiences served to authenticate the divine force that they were believing was at work. If I believe in this certain God or gods or this, this sort of mystical reality and I have this experience, then that validates and affirms the thing that I am believing in. Now, Paul has already begun addressing their former life of idol worship back in chapter 8. You may remember that discussion concerning you know, meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul there denounces their idols as impotent. He says in uh, chapter 8, verse 4, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. But here in chapter 12, he, he supplements this, this argument against the, the, the former way of idolatry that defined the, pay, the, the Corinthians' lives he supplements the argument begun in chapter 8 with something here in chapter 12 in verse 2 where he, he basically says, yes, behind your experiences, somewhere in the midst of your idolatry, there is a power at work that's leading you astray. Look in verse 2. You know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. No, the idols are not God. And yet, in your captivity to idol worship, 
you were swept away by some type of force. Something was at work behind that, that way of life that was keeping you trapped and imprisoned. And Paul doesn't want them to fall prey to that life anymore. These were converts who were saved out of that world. The gospel had penetrated, the, the light of the gospel had penetrated the darkness. They experienced real transformation from the inside out. They were saved from their sins, not just from the consequences of their sins, but from the power of their sins, the grip that sin had upon their lives. They were saved out of that darkness into the marvelous light. And Paul wants them to, to not let their past idolatry and their, their pagan experience of religion or mysticism to, to flavor or influence or define their life in Christ. He wants them to think differently. He doesn't want them to misunderstand what the Holy Spirit is doing in their midst. There's a vast difference between their spiritual experiences before and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives now. Now there in verse 1, the Greek word that the NLT renders um, special abilities is that word, um, let's see if I can get this word right. It's been a while since I took Greek but I believe it's pneumatikos, or pneumatikos, depending on how you want to put the accents on the, the vowels there, or express the vowels. And basically what pneumatikos stands for is, is something along the lines of the operation or the influence of the Spirit. How the Spirit works in a person's life. And, and what does that look like? These are, these are things pertaining to the work in the presence of the person of the Spirit. And it's something like a blanket term. So when Paul says, you know, I, don't, I want you to understand the special abilities the Spirit gives us, he's not just talking about things you do. He's talking about the, the totality of the influence of the Spirit upon your life and how that's expressed in your Christian experience. Sort of like a blanket term, as it were. And so as he begins to talk about the authentic spiritual life, what is lesson number one? What's the first thing he wants them to understand as it pertains to their experience of the things that are truly spiritually from God? Well, it's a great lesson for them, and I think it's a great lesson still for us today. It's one that we probably need to be reminded of every morning when we wake up and in every situation we find ourselves in, no matter where you are or who you are. And it is this. It's not all about you. It's not all about you. I know, Laura, that's shocking and disappointing to you. <laughs> but it's not all about you. Look at verse 3. He says, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So as, as I'm reading that verse, and I know we've gone to that verse for other reasons at times, but as I'm trying to read that verse within the, the broader context of what Paul's trying to say and what he's talking about and who he's talking to, it seems to me that rule number one, the rule that governs all the rest of what he's about to say about you know, life in the Spirit, true spirituality, is, is that the result of the Holy Spirit's influence upon a person's life is always the honor and glory of Jesus. If the Holy Spirit has done anything in your life, if the Holy Spirit is present and actively working in any way, you can be sure that it will be to the honor and glory of Jesus. We know from all throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, and most especially in the Upper Room Discourse in John, which we 
If you were in Bible study a number of months ago, or if you've been in any of the services this year, you know that we spent a whole bunch of time in John. It's sort of been the year of John, and that wasn't even really planned. It just kind of happened. But if you were present for any of that, you know that the, the testimony of the New Testament, the testimony of the Gospels, the testimony from the Lord's mouth himself is that it is the burning desire of the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus. And as a result of that, as the Spirit enters into your life and as the Spirit is working in your life and as the Spirit's presence and operations become manifest in your life, you will know that Jesus will be the centerpiece of it all. From your own born-again experience, and I know we tend to make our born-again experience all about me, who I was and what I am now, you know, what, what I came from and what God did to me, and we tend to make it very self-focused, don't we? But let me assure you that even your, your own born-again experience ultimately is not about you. The Spirit is working in you to bring glory to the Son and by extension to the Father. So whether it's your own born-again experience or whatever giftedness that the Spirit has brought into your life, you can be sure that none of it is about you but always about Him. And as the church, the very body of Christ in the world, is formed, and as it functions as it is intended, you can be sure that Jesus Christ will be regarded and proclaimed as Lord over all. And it's only ever in this light then, as you and I try to process and understand and live out the life, the life of God, the, the, the life of a Christian filled with the Spirit. It's only ever in this light that the mature Christian should ever understand their own spirituality. You know, when, like I, I said a moment ago, when we, when we first come to Jesus, it's usually, you know, all about what we stand to gain from him, isn't it? How do I stand to benefit from Jesus? You know, I, you know, I, I, I'm a sinner, I have need, I'm broken, and here's this one who comes to do something for me. And that sort of mentality tends to undergird all of our evangelistic efforts too, doesn't it? How we appeal to people. You know, we, we talk about the reality of hell, and we should talk about the reality of hell. And, and we should talk about the consequences of sin, and we should absolutely be talking about those kinds of things. And, and so we, we present the gospel in terms of these, these categories that appeal to people's sense of need or urgency. I, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm looking for an escape from hell. I have brokenness, so I'm looking for someone to heal me. You know, I, I have purposelessness in my life. I see the vanity in the world. I see that there's nothing out there that truly lasts forever. And so I'm looking for something that, that does last forever. Something, I, I like the idea of storing up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust or decay can touch. We're always thinking about the gospel in terms of me. How does this benefit me? What do I stand to gain? How do I benefit? Now, listen, it's not completely wrong to think that way either. Because at the end of the day, you do need Jesus. <laughs> let's, let's not be mistaken here. You absolutely need Jesus. You, you stand no hope of ever gaining heaven or, or receiving healing for your life or, or any purpose behind anything that you do in, in any of your existence. You have no hope for eternity. You have no hope for anything ultimately good in this life or the life to come apart from him. So let's not be mistaken. You absolutely need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. The world needs what only he can supply. And it is true. In Jesus, we get a lot. <laughs> 
So let's not pretend those things aren't, aren't a reality. Absolutely. And let's also not forget that sinful people, before they come to Christ, are intrinsically self-centered. And so it makes sense that we, we want to meet them where they are with the gospel. Let me show you how the gospel meets your felt needs, or the gospel exceeds your, your sense of what is important in life or what is good for you. It's okay at some level to meet them there, and that's what we should do. But, but don't miss the, the fact that the work, the sanctifying maturing work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life is to somehow move us from a me focus to a Jesus focus. And too many Christians wallow around in their their sense of spirituality thinking it's all about them. And they resist the Spirit's work in their life to bring them to a place where they will die to themselves. They'll say, it's not about me. It's not about my will. It's not about what I want. That, that there's, if there's a throne at the center of my heart, it's not for me to occupy with Jesus by my side serving all of my needs. And let me tell you, I know for a fact there are some of you here this morning, that is your Christian experience right now. You have not let Jesus reign at the heart of your life. You want his benefits. You want what he can do for you. You want the get out of jail or get out of hell free card. And whenever something's broken in your life, you're looking for him to fix it. And those are all fine. But at the end of the day, he's not just your savior. He is your Lord. And you will never experience the fullness of the Spirit's influence or operation in your life until you say yes to absolute surrender to him. You say, Lord, have all of me, not just the part of me that's easy or convenient or gets me something in the sight of my peers, Lord, take all of my life, what people see and what people don't see. The, the, the good and the bad, the hard and the easy. Take it all. Be the, be the Lord on the throne of my heart. Be king. Be, be the sovereign. Be that great word we get from the Greek that we see in the Gospels. Be the despot over me. That's what the Spirit is doing in your life. He's taking you from a me focus to a Jesus focus. And as we think about our spirituality, our testimony, what God is doing in my life, the gifts that he's given me, the abilities that I have, the things that I do, my service, my ministry, whatever my, my, me, me in there, at the end of the day, none of that is about you at all. All of your salvation, all of your giftedness, Every aspect of the Spirit's work in your life is for the glory of God. You belong to a body, his body, which is always the context for spiritual gifts. Isn't that interesting? That there's never a discussion about gifts in the abstract or in the individual. It's always within the context of the corporate. Because even the things that God has enabled you to do are not to be done for yourself. They're to be done for him and for others. Always. The Greek mystery cults were all about individual, personal fulfillment. I want an experience. I need the gods to do something. I want to have this whatever. It is absolutely a me over we religion. But listen, Anytime that's the, the cry of a person's heart, that is a false spirituality. That is nothing 
that the Holy Spirit of God will ever produce in a person's life. The genuine work of the Spirit will always take a heart that's warped and curved in on itself and turn it outward every time. That's always the Spirit's work. That is true, genuine spirituality. That is the the authentic mark of the Spirit's presence upon your life. When one when one's heart is curved out towards Christ and his people. It is the, the Christ-centered community. That, that definition within our own vision statement of who we are. We are what? A Christ-centered community. That is what the church is. It's not just a community. And it's not just individuals who are Christ-centered. It is a Christ-centered community. And it is there. In the Christ-centered community. That is the venue where true spirituality is worked out. It is there not just in your own individual life or for your own individual life, but in the body where the lordship of Christ is demonstrated to all the world. So if all that is true, and this is, that was all uh, prefaced, by the way, and if you're like me, you're watching the clock, and you're like, my goodness, he took 15 minutes for preface. What is the rest of the sermon going to be like? Uh, I promise to have you out of here by no later than 1 o'clock this afternoon, Okay. So here's the, uh, there's the clap, there's the claps, okay. All right, so you got that out of your system. All, okay, everyone, we're done with the clapping now, all right. So what does this all look like then? If verses one through three are meant to be preface and establishing sort of what Paul's trying to say, I think verses four through seven continue this before we get to the meat and potatoes of gifts and life in the body and all those kinds of things. What does this look like? If, if the Holy Spirit is moving us from self-focus to Jesus-focus, and if it's not, not all about me, but all about him, and if the local church is the venue where all these things happen, well, how? And that brings us to our text. Look in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 4 through 6. We'll, we'll get to 7 here in just a bit. But 4 through 6, listen to this. Paul says this. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. Now, the first thing I want you to note there is the beautiful interplay of unity and diversity. In each of those verses, you see the word different. And the point is, there's all manner of different expressions of the Spirit's presence and activity in and through his people. And yet, the same Lord, the same Spirit, the same God in them all. Did you notice the, the little um, call out to the, the Trinity there? That wasn't, that wasn't unintentional. If you look in the Greek, it is literally pneuma, Spirit, kurios, Lord, Theos, God. Spirit, Lord, God. Spirit, Son, Father. The triune God is being referenced here as he's talking about unity and diversity. And that's appropriate because God himself is a being of unity and diversity. Within the one God, there is a diversity of persons. It is persons in communion. And as such, the expression of such a God in the world will have rich variety. Yes, it all comes from him. It is all about him. It is all for him. And yet how it is expressed takes on many different shapes and colors and sizes. There's no one-size-fits-all expression of Christian spirituality. It all comes from him, and it all has the purpose, by the way, of unifying his people 
So there's a, a already a theological foundation for any discussion about spiritual gifts or life in the body to come. Yes, you are all members of one body. Unity, diversity. Remember last week, and we were talking about 1 Peter 4.10, where Peter says that God's grace has many colors. And so, all the ways that he works within the church is many colored. And you see, this it's because of that, that when I think about the discussions about, you know, whether Christians should attend a church or whether, you know, we should embrace what's called a house church model, it is here where I, I think I have the biggest problem with what has been deemed the house church model of, of Christianity. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting for a second that uh, there's a problem with house church model in places in the world where that's the only way to meet as Christians, and certainly there are places in the world where that is true. And we have to be sensitive to that. And we should be in prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have the luxury of, of meeting in a beautiful worship space like this. We are, we are spoiled beyond comprehension if we really think about it. That we, we have the, the ability and the opportunity to freely come here. I was walking down the hallway yesterday and there's a sign up on the wall. You would miss it if you didn't see it. And it said something like, you know, thank Thank God for salvation, but, but thank the army for the freedom to worship. And I, and I thought, there's something about that, right? We, we're grateful that there are people in the world who are, who are there to defend freedom. And we, we honor that and give thanks to that because there's so many places in the world where that's not true. And so I would never for a second want to, to you know, malign anyone for that matter, but, but especially people who, that's the only way that they can meet as Christian is to be in places where, you know, they can't be in a public gathering, so they meet in their homes. I'm talking about the type of house church Christianity that, that essentially shuns this, the, the larger corporate life of the church in favor of, you know, a handful of people meeting in the comforts of our living room. Oftentimes, people who favor that model do so to the detriment of this rich variety of the Spirit's expression in our lives that Paul's talking about. How so? Well, because the tendency that I've seen, and, I'm, and again, this is not meant to be a blanket statement for everybody, but the tendency seems to be that those who favor that tend to surround themselves with people just like themselves. They have their friend group. They have people who look like them, who talk like them, who think like them, who have the same tastes and preferences as them. They're the easy people to get along, and so we surround ourselves with, with that group. It's comfortable. It's convenient. Now, that would never be anyone's stated intentions, and, and, and I'm sure many people that embrace this model you know, think they have good intentions, and maybe they do. I don't know anyone's heart, and I'm not trying to judge anybody. I'm just, I'm just assessing things as, as best as I can see them in light of the Scriptures, but not only do people uh, embrace this model at the detriment of the variety of the Spirit's work, but sometimes I think it's as an escape from the variety. You know, it's just hard to, to share space and ministry and activities with people that are different than I am. People who articulate their faith differently than I do, or claim a different experience with the Holy Spirit than I have, or prefer different colors on the wall. I mean, fill in the blank. 
It's hard to get along with the other sometimes. It's hard to see eye to eye with them. It's hard to work side by side. It's hard to get along. But I think somewhere in here, Paul is telling us that it is in the communion of the diverse where we best see the Holy Spirit's manifestation of grace. We see, we see the rich variety of color of God's grace in the larger corporate life of the church. And there's something missed when we forsake that. Is there a time and a place for a house church model of church life? Absolutely. But never if it's an escape from diversity. Never if it's meant to get away from the discomfort or, or the challenges of, of being a family full of all sorts of different people, being a body with many different members. If it's nothing but a bunch of hands in one room, that's not a body. That's just a bunch of hands. You need to be part of a body that is full of a range of opinion and perspective and giftedness and expression, accountability, all the beautiful things that come through life in the body of Christ. We don't image the triune God through homogeneity, do we? But through unity in diversity. So back, back to the original question. I got, uh, there was a little bit of an aside there talking about unity and diversity. But back to the original question. What are the variety of ways that the Spirit enables the church in all of its diversity to embody the presence of Christ and point to his lordship. That's what this is all about. In the end, well, Paul will spell it out in three words, and they're Greek words, and by no means am I trying to impress anybody with my Greek. I've already demonstrated a very weak uh, memory of what I learned in seminary and in Bible college. But there are three Greek words in verses four, five, and six that we read in English a moment ago that are helpful for us to understand Paul's uh, articulation of how this has worked out in our lives. And the first is in verse four. He says, there are different kinds of what? Spiritual gifts. That Greek word is charismata. Comes from the the, the root word is uh, charis, which means grace. So think of charismata as something like grace made concrete or grace expressed. You know, when we talk about God's grace, thank you God for your grace. Thank you for this, this thing it seems very abstract at times when we talk about it. Thank you for this thing you've done for me or this thing you've given me, the gift of your grace. Thank you for that. But charismata in this context, think of it more as a tangible outward expression of what God has given you, what God has done in your life. Now there's a modern Greek word. This is different than the, the Koine Greek of the first century. It's not the same Greek, but it's similar. There's obviously shared uh, shared history there and shared etymology. But in, in modern Greek, this word means something like birthday present. But I don't think Paul means it like that in this context. I don't think he's saying, you know, the thing that God has given you as an individual to enjoy and, you know, it's sort of like you're, you're precious. I'm just gonna, you know, this is my thing. I love this thing. It's all about me. Thank you, God, for the gift to me. That's not the emphasis here at all. No, it's, it's not the gift to be enjoyed by the individual, but the grace at work in you to benefit the body. God has done something in your life. God is doing something in your life. God has given something to your life, but it's not for you. It's to be shared. It's to be given. It's to be extended. It's to flow out to others. How does the gift of grace in you benefit the person next to you. And that's a much better... De- now, the, the translation in English was spiritual gift. When was the last time you defined spiritual gift like that? 
Usually spiritual gift is that supernatural ability that God gave me. I'm now Superman when it comes to this thing. And, and again, yes, God gives us ability. He enables certain things to be done in our lives. But Paul wants us to understand, understand spiritual gifts as far more than just supernatural ability. It's God's grace at work in you for another. God's, God's grace comes to us, absolutely. But as Paul sees it, it is to be expressed through us in service to God. And that's the next word, verse 5. If in verse 4 there's a variety of charismata or you know, spiritual gifts, uh, grace made concrete, verse 5, there are different kinds of service. Diaconiae, where we get the word deacon, which means basically servant. There are different kinds of service. There are different ways. That, and we talked about this last week at the ministry fair. That's exactly what that was. It's a variety of ways that you and I can be of service to God and to one another. One of the things that I respect and appreciate most about uh, Pastor Jeff, aside from his ability to begin an awkward clap in the middle of a sermon, thank you for that, Jeff. No one can do it like you can. But one of the things I respect and appreciate most about him is, is his philosophy is, of worship. Have you ever had a chance to sit down and, and hear his heart and his perspective on what it means to stand up here and, and sing and, and, and for us as a congregation to sing? You'll know that near and dear to his heart is this idea that worship is never about us showing off. It's never about us performing. It's not about entertainment. It is about rightly giving God the praise and adoration that he is due. First and foremost, it's the same thing we've been talking It's not about me. It's about him. But you know what? That's not only true about singing. And, and too often, we, we limit the idea of worship to singing. And we say, we say things like, you know, after worship, Pastor Sean will preach. Well, no. Worship is not defined exclusively by singing. Singing and praising God is just one form of worship. If we take Paul seriously in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he would say that worship is far more than just the offering of your voice. It is the offering of your whole life. You present your body to God as a living sacrifice. That is your holy and pleasing and acceptable worship before God. It is the presentation of all of me for all of him. And just like Pastor Jeff's philosophy of, of worship in song, that same principle is true for all of life, all of worship. It's not about me. It is about him. And the church is not the venue for you to show off your abilities and talents. Nothing makes me more uncomfortable than when someone is up here and thank God it, I don't want to say never happens because we're not perfect, but I'm, I'm struggling to think of a time that it does happen. It almost never happens when someone is up front and they're doing something to bring attention to themselves. Man, nothing is more uncomfortable to me than that. That is not worship. That is not leading. That is purely and totally self-engrandizement. I want the spotlight on me. I want people to hear how good I can sing or how witty and eloquent I can be or you know, I, how funny I am. Whatever it is, the things that we do to get accolades from others. That is not worship, folks. The church is not the venue for you and me to showcase our abilities, but to use what the Spirit is doing in our lives what the Spirit has gifted us with, the ways the Spirit is manifesting His life in and through us in service to God and one another. That is what the church is for. Why did God call me to speak up here on Sundays? However good or, or bad it may be from week to week. Well, it's not for me to earn a paycheck, although I'm very grateful for 
compensation, thank you. It's not so that I can get clicks on social media, and I'm glad that's not the case because I don't get very many of those. And it's, it's not so that I can somehow build a reputation or a brand. No, God called me here to do this week after week after tiresome week to build up you. And the second that I miss that or deviate that from that by, by one degree, I miss what God has called me to be and do. It's never about the pastor. And I, I urge you to resist any form of pastor idolatry that might be in your life. What a beautiful thing to say on the pastor's birthday. <laughs> Why did God give Pastor Jeff and our wonderful musicians and the talented people that are in our congregation such beautiful creativity and, and ability? Well, it's not to entertain you. It's not to sell merch. <laughs> but to draw people into the worship of God, the right worship of God. The same can be asked of any form of calling or service that any one of you is involved in. It's not just about the people with the, the bright, like, sweat-inducing spotlight, you know, pouring down on them up here on the platform. It's a question for all of us. Why did God call you to that? Why did God enable you for that? Why are you passionate about that? Well, it's not for your own gain. You can be sure of that. It's meant to benefit the church. And when you and I serve one another, we follow the example of Christ. Which, by the way, following his example is one of the most beautiful ways that you can acknowledge him as Lord. Because when you follow someone, you're saying, I agree with them. I submit. He goes this way, I go this way. He goes high, I follow him high. He goes low, I go as low as I need to. Why? Because he's my Lord. And even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve and give his life as a ransom for many. When you follow Jesus to the death of yourself, for the sake of another, you acknowledge him as Lord over all. It's beautiful how that works in a person's life. There are different kinds of grace, different kinds of service, and lastly, verse 6, there are a variety of energies. Look at verse 6. God works, energia in the Greek, God works in different ways but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. The operation and power of the Holy Spirit is not theoretical. It's not just some abstract thing that he does in the ether somewhere. No, the Spirit is a dynamic force at work in your life to produce real results and fruit. When the Holy Spirit comes to lives, they're changed. When the Holy Spirit comes to a marriage, it's transformed and restored. When the Holy Spirit comes in the middle of a relationship, it is made right. Addictions are broken. Congregations become missional. Testimonies become effective. Talents are released. That's what the Spirit is doing, and yet he works differently in your life than he does in mine. 
the energy and the impulse and the quickening effect of his influence upon your life doesn't look the same as it does on mine. And it doesn't have to, but it's all the same spirit. It is all intended to, to, to bring us to a place where all of our energy, all of our life, everything that we are doing is bringing glory to God and benefiting his people. His energy in our individual lives spills out into the corporate life of the community. And all of these things, the variety of graces, the, the variety of services, the variety of workings of the spirit in your life, that represents true Christian spirituality. And none of it, if you haven't heard me yet, <laughs> I'm going to say it one more time, none of it is about you. Look at verse 7. I told you we get there, and we're going we're gonna to land the plane here in the next couple minutes. Verse 7. I'm going to read the NLT, and it's going to be on the screen, but I really, really don't like the NLT in this verse. The NLT says, a spiritual gift, it, by the way, it starts a new paragraph. I don't think there should be a paragraph break here. I think this is a continuation of the verse before. And by the way, in Koine Greek, there are no paragraph breaks, so good luck, or punctuation, so good luck figuring out how that all works. But verse 7, I think, should be a continuation from the thought in verse 6, same paragraph, and I don't like how this is rendered, but I'll read it in NLT, and then we'll, I'll explain why I favor a different translation. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. Now, that word for spiritual gift is not the word that I mentioned a moment ago from back in verse 4, charismata. That is not the word in verse 7. The word in verse 7 is the original word back in verse 1, which is not just spiritual gift or supernatural ability as we tend to think about it. If you, if you were bringing that sort of baggage to that verse, you would be thinking, oh, a, a supernatural ability is given to me so I can help someone out. Okay, maybe so. But I, think that's, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think he's saying more than that. I think he's saying something more like what the ESV renders it when it says, to each is given not just a spiritual gift, something, one thing for you to do. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. And the manifestation of the Spirit covers all the things in verses 4 to 6 that I was just talking about. All the various ways the Spirit manifests the life of God in you through your gifts, through your abilities, through your, your talents, through the, the energies at work in your life, through all of these things, absolutely, the Holy Spirit is manifesting the life of God. And Paul says to each of us, the manifestation of the Spirit is taking place, why? For the common good. For the common good. God is doing all these things in you for one another. And I think that might be the most beautiful, succinct definition of church life. That's, that is, oh, that's pure ecclesiology. God in you for one another. I love that. In the church, not in the comforts of your living room, but in the corporate life of the body, God's glory is expressed in and through your life, visibly and publicly. God is at work in you, and the benefit is not for you, but for the community. It's not for your attention. It's not for anyone's ego. It's not for anyone's preferences or feels. Man, I had a guy that once told me he, he came to church because, um, what do you say? I get blessed. 
And he said, I can get blessed anywhere. I come here because my wife wants to come here. I can get blessed anywhere. I was like, man, what a weak view of church life. You're just here to get blessed. No, this isn't God's secret society. This isn't God's mystery cult where everything is about your own personal experience of fulfillment. Oh, I come here to get the feels. I like singing that song because I, I like that song. Man, I got chills at that one point. That's, that's not what this is. No, Paul's saying together, you and I are the embodiment of God in this world. And the only true authentication of genuine Christian experience is when the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus as Lord through your life as part of the body. That's how you know you know. When God is in you for his glory and for his people. And anything that dismisses that corporate focus of Christian spiritual life is a perversion of it. Whether it's someone on this end who's being self-centered and showing off and drawing attention to themselves or seeking their own gain, or whether it's someone on the other end of the spectrum who's concealing the Spirit's operation and influence in their life by hiding their talent in the ground, or whether it's the one that shows up and says, you know, it's all about me, or the one who says, church doesn't really matter, all that matters is me and Jesus. None of that, friends, is of the Holy Spirit of God. So where do you fall then within the spectrum? What defines your spirituality? How is your faith being worked out within the life of this or a church? I recognize not everyone here is a member, and that's fine. Or if you're just visiting, how is this being worked out in your life? If you're a believer, a follower of Christ, how is your faith being worked out within the life of his body? In what tangible ways is the Holy Spirit manifesting his presence in and through your life for the benefit of others? Is your life, you know, sort of like, the grace sponge where God's grace is poured into it and it just soaks it up. Mm. Mm, I just love, you know, hoarding God's grace to myself. Or is your life more like the conduit through which God's grace, yes, does come to you, but goes through you to others? There's a big difference between those. Where do you fall in that? Are you just here to get something? I, I, a couple years ago, I mentioned a, an article by Tom Rainer back in 2015 titled, 15 Reasons Our Churches Are Less Evangelistic Today. And one of those was this. Churches are no longer houses of prayer equipped to reach the lost, but rather where we go to get our needs met. Yes, we've said it already. Your needs can be met here. But what is the sum total of your purpose here? Is it to get or is it to give? To give yourself away in love. Is the life-transforming power of God at work in you, energizing you for all of life and godliness and service and ministry to one another and by extension to the world? Paul doesn't want the Corinthians or any of us here this morning to be confused about the essence and working out of true Christian spiritual life. It happens best here. It's never about you but always about him and his body. It is he and we over me. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We love, we love hearing from your word. We love the challenge 
the conviction. But this morning, I, I just want to emphasize how much we love being a part of, of a family, the family of God. And it is true that the family of God represents all who are in Christ, past and present, here and afar, of every nation and tribe and tongue and skin color and rank, every age, both of the two genders. <laughs> Lord, all who are in Christ are a part of the body of Christ. And yet, the local church is where we experience that universal reality in a, in a concrete, tangible, enfleshed, personal, interpersonal way. And no, ch- no two churches are the same, and no one church is perfect. But it is here, Lord, where we, we experience your grace in all of its rich variety. Grace at work in individuals for the sake of others. And it is here where we image the triune God who by nature, from eternity past, is persons in communion, Father, Son, and Spirit, who each are not the other, but are each given for the other, and are, whose faces are pointed toward the other. Lord, may, may this people here, somehow, by the working of your Spirit, image that. No, no, no two of us are the same, and yet all of us belong to each other and we're, our lives are, are intertwined with each other and we're here to work together to bring you glory and to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Lord, may this endeavor be about you and others and never about ourselves. May we come to a place where we die to I. And Lord, would you reign on the throne of each individual heart and on the throne of this church that you would be glorified, that your work would be accomplished, that your glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Thank you for this time, for this season, this last month we've had to think about the nature and value of church life. Lord, may each of us be that much more determined to commit ourselves to your work here, to express the Spirit's work in us within the context of your people. Lord, may it be true for us all, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.